Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Our guest today is COO of Thorben, Chris Kumi. Those who know him call him Kumi. Kumi has dedicated his life to helping entrepreneurs get more out of their businesses and lives by building multiple streams of value for income, wealth, and fun. Currently, he's focused on building value in Thorben Consulting, as well as his wife's enterprise cloud solution provider for the federal government and growing businesses. Drawing on his experience as a business owner, business consultant, and business attorney, Kumi provides perspective and practical guidance to entrepreneurs through the currently underground Business Growth Guild. Kumi invests in companies that apply proven innovations in new fields with visions of impacting his corner of the world. Kumi started his first business when he was 19 with a coffee shop. He started his own law practice out of law school and grew to a 12 attorney firm and then turned the practice over to his partners when his first son was born. Kumi has a law degree from the College of William and Mary, an MS in conflict analysis and resolution from George Mason University, and a BA and MA in social sciences from the University of Chicago. Kumi has written two books that were Amazon bestsellers in their categories, The Business Godfather Treatment, The Street Smart Guide to Building Wealth, and Plan to Not Pay Taxes, and looks forward to his next career for writing entertaining fiction because life is for laughing. Kumi always enjoys coaching youth sports, raising his family in our wacky world, and drinking red wine. Kumi, I am right there with you. Welcome to the Second in Command podcast. Yeah, so that's everything that I've got there. So thanks for having me, Cameron. Yeah, how many kids have you got? We have three boys, two in college, one working on it. One working on it. When, uh, what did it feel like dropping your first couple off at college? Are they nearby or are they out of town a bit? Well, the first was about seven, eight hours away in upstate New York, and, yeah. but he's an engineer. So there were no tears shed. It was, it was a business transaction. We dropped him off. And um, I will say this. So as I drove away, I did get a little tear in my eye. Yeah, I just dropped I just dropped my youngest son off at university in Montreal four days ago, and I've uh, pretty much cried every day since. At some point, it was pretty brutal, pretty brutal. Um, but we have te- we have texting and we've got phone calls, and so yeah, that's the amazing thing is we've got technology and we've got FaceTime, right? Like we've got the the, the connection that we didn't have when you and I went away to school. What was the drive for all the education that you got? Well, part of it was I was good at it. And it was really finding that itch and Mm. particularly like the conflict analysis and resolution growing up in a world of conflict. I grew up, as we mentioned, we talked about, I grew up in New York, which is filled with conflict. Yeah. And it was really just intriguing to me about how do you do well in that, in those situations. And as I've grown up even more, I realize we're all in this world of conflict with groups so social psychology, and we're living it every day now. Mm-hmm. Well, and we used to not know it. Now it's part of the news and part of everyday interaction. And that's also part of kind of the excitement of businesses is that you're always at some level of conflict of how do we manage our team and how do we manage our market and our customers and things like that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guess you're about, what are you, about 46, 47? 55. Oh, you're the same age as I am. All right. When do you turn 56? January, January 28th. All right. I'm, I'm 
uh, two months older than you then I turned 56 <laughs> in October. Okay. So, so the same age. So when you were growing up, you were an entrepreneur at heart. Did you become a lawyer because you had all those same traits, like the problem solving, good leadership, analytical skills, you know, headstrong, determined, tenacity, all that stuff. Was that what led you down to be a lawyer? That was part of it. Plus that part of it was when I was growing up in the eighties, every adult I knew between the age of 40 and 50 had their career changed, not by their choice. Wow. And I was determined to not let wow. that happen to me. So that's really what's fed my, my striving career as we go forward. Wow. Interesting. I've never experienced that. That's really cool. So that was what shaped you was just to be in control of your own destiny. Yeah. And, and also to help other people not let that happen to them. Yeah. And the, the lawyer part was, you know, in the eighties, it was, you know, in, in the 20, the second half of the 20th century, we we're in the professional world right. was become a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, an architect. And that was really the values of that time. Yeah. And, you know, my family was an immigrant family. So again, education was a big part of it. And what I think is interesting is now in the 21st century, we've moved away from that professional world and almost back to where we were a hundred years ago, where everybody had multiple streams of income. They, they had a, they, they might've had a job. They had, they kept borders in the house. They, yeah, they, yeah. they did crafts, they were farmers. Yeah. So now people talk about it as if it's a different time, this is actually more normal. Interesting. The odd time was that 1950 to 2000 for the professionals. Yeah, and you're right. And in that late 80s, early 90s stage, kind of up until about 93, 94, being an entrepreneur was not cool. We were right. we were vilified, we were greedy, profit-centric, kind of we were the dirty black sheep of the family, being the entrepreneurial person. So I get why you went into law. I did my undergraduate degree in law. Um, so what do you think you take with you in your COO role today from your law practice then? Well, the law practice, you know, you fo always focus on your client. Mm -hmm. And as a COO, your client is your employees, as well as the organization, and then clients. And so you're basically always looking, how am I putting, making sure their interests are taken care of? And that's, that's the motivation between, you know, building an organization where people feel connected and also helps them achieve their potential. What kind of law did you practice? Well, I was a business lawyer. And right. going back to what you're talking about in 93, 94, being, a business being in business was not attractive. Mm. And I'd go to these interviews and everyone wanted me to build a law practice on environmental law or you know, litigation or something. Basically, they wanted me to build their business. Right. Okay. And my passion was always helping the entrepreneur achieve their dreams. Got it. And that was, so I started out and it turned out to be the perfect time in 1994, as the internet started to wake up and all the opportunities that came from that and, you know, have a change in 98 and 2001 and 2007. So well, I think there's a lot of skills you bring to the table as a COO, having been a lawyer, especially in the business law practice. I mean, it's just, a, it's an area where we encounter agreements and, uh, contracts and employment law and trade. And there's so much that happens in the business world that you're around as a lawyer. That's a, a really strong skill to bring in as a COO. Yeah. You have to be a quick read, 
But I'll tell you, one of the things that's interesting is that now this practice of law has been about being a, becoming a bully. Uh, and it's, you know, the loudest, you know, uh, you know, off center thing. For me, it was always about, you know, getting people to those practical solutions. And so that yeah. was what I brought to the table as a lawyer was I can give you the legal side, but also the practical business side. And that's being a COO, really. And that's, yeah, that's, sure. that's, part, that's part of, yeah, for me, it's the puzzle, helping people solve their problem and, you know, work towards their dreams. Now, the, the people that are listening to the podcast can't see see you right now or see behind you right now, but you just moved backwards and a logo flashed in front of me. And that was the logo of my very one of my very, very first coaching clients, um, Yannick Silver, who runs Maverick and Maverick Business Adventures. I was introduced to him by Tim Ferriss in 2007. So how did you get to know Yannick and, and what did you guys pull out of the uh, the group that he's involved in? So that I love, I love being a maverick and it started like all things. I happened to be sitting at lunch at, for another group and he was just sitting next to me and we, we were talking about kids cause he has a son and a daughter yep. and turns out the next month he was doing a family entrepreneur event. Sure. And so I brought my 10 year old son who's now an 18 year old son. And they went and built a business plan around selling glow sticks on July 4th down in Annapolis, Maryland. Amazing. And from that, you know, I've always, the, the whole beauty of Maverick is it's about, as an entrepreneur, it's not just about money, it's about impact and fun. Mm -hmm. And so it's very consistent with what I've done my whole life. And that's, you know, that's really my tribe. Those are my people. So yeah, they are wonderful people. And Camp Maverick was one of my favorite events that Yannick would put on. And and what was the event that you were at? Do you remember what the other event? Was it a mastermind or another entrepreneur conference you were at where you met him? Well, well, it was actually, it was another, it was another one of your clients. So it was Cadre. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, Derek, with Derek Coburn. Coburn, Derek and Mel Coburn. And so it was one of their, it was one of their lunch meetings. I think that was part of what Cadre did was they'd have monthly lunch meetings, interesting topics, working on different aspects of your business. Yeah. And that was, so that was, Cadre was a first step. I was operating a financial education business at the time and was very much engaged in the day-to-day. -day. So yeah. that was part of that conscious, how do I start extracting myself from the day-to-day -day and having other people manage. And so Cadre was a first step and then Maverick is just my favorite. So, yeah. And so, and, and Yannick and anyway, yeah, we could geek out on, on mastermind groups forever, just off those two guys alone. So there's a concept that I learned years ago from a friend of, of Yannick's name. His name is Joe Polish, who I'm a close friend with now. And I'm a member of his genius network um, who talked about the first domino. And the idea being that, you know, when you see the room filled with dominoes that are set up and you touch the first domino and everything else just happens because of that first domino, it's, it sounds like Derek Coburn might've been one of your first dominoes then because of Cadre leading you to Yannick, Maverick stuff, that impacting your family. That's also how I actually went to your talk at, mm -hmm. at Cadre and got your book, Double Double. Yep. And part of the Maverick, I was talking with one of the Mavericks. And he said, yeah, I, I have this book, Double Double. And all I did was follow the directions. And that's how I doubled my business. It gets simple, right? Well, and, yeah. and I'm, so what we're kind of talking about here is that if we're the smartest person in the room, we're in the wrong room. 
And it's about learning from others and absorbing that information. But you've always been a real student. So is that part of the appeal for you of being in these groups is that you're continuing to learn? It's or is it more about the community and and hanging out with like minded people? You know, the, 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 the learning is part of it. Like one of the things I love, like next week I have, I have tickets to the traffic and conversion. I don't do internet marketing, sure, but I'm intrigued that that is for every business. That is a nut that they have to crack. Yeah. So I need to learn that so I can bring that to bear for clients and other businesses that I work with. Yeah. So I need to, I need to have that specialized knowledge. So it is, it's the problem solving and how do we, bring stuff to the table for people who are too busy in their day to day. So I was talking to somebody about this just recently, and, and I, I'm good friends with Perry Belcher and Roland Fraser and uh, Ryan Dice, who run Traffic and Conversion and War Room, spectacular, spectacular business community, less of the community that you have in Maverick and, and Cadre and more of just really deep IP around all things digital marketing. But I was talking to a CEO about this the other day, and he said, I need to learn all this. And I said, no, you need to be aware of it all so that the people that do it for you can then do it. But we need to be aware. So are you going to traffic and conversion to really get good at it? Or are you just going to kind of... Oh, definitely for the definitely for the awareness. Yeah. So I can point people to what's the potential. And that's, you know, at, at the end of the day, that's the most important thing is to show people what's possible. And, you know, right now we're in an IT, my, my wife's company is an IT company. Yeah. One of the things I, back in the 90s, I worked with a lot of engineers as they were building their internet companies. And what I learned was they want to intimidate you with language and complexity. And so I learned the basics of websites and the basic of e-commerce. And so I know when they're trying to bluff me. Sure. And if you're a CEO and someone's coming to you with a social media marketing plan, you need to be able to know, do they really know what they're they talking really know about? It. Yeah. Or are they bluffing me? And then where, where should I really make sure that I'm focused on? Because I think one of the problems for business owners, they know they need to do it. The first person that comes to them presents them with a nice PowerPoint presentation followed by a bill. And then they don't, they're not really getting those results. That's probably the most common with any kind of cutting edge service. Mm-hmm. And so you need to have, you need an understanding of what's realistic and also what is, how does it fit your particular company? How, how have you been able to determine whether these contractors that are, are pitching you or, or the sub trades that are pitching us, how have you been able to determine which ones are the ones to go with? What's, what's your kind of decision-making model to select people to outsource parts of the business to? <sighs> It's always a challenge. I always prefer to do, you know, a personal connection. That's where the Maverick comes in. You know, mm-hmm. those are folks, generally you have kind of a connection and consistent values. And outside of having a network like that, it's being able to ask them the questions and give you and find out what their answer is. So I was setting up a company back in 2007. And I needed a basic network so I could have computers work. And I knew what I didn't need. And three companies came in and one of them bid me out this big rack and all the, like all this complexity. And then one guy came in and he's like, well, for what you need, you basically need this and it's going to cost you, you know, 
one one hundredth of what this other guy said. Wow. And it was more that I knew that the other guy was bluffing. Yeah. I knew I didn't need that. And yep. I went with the guy who was straightforward. But if I didn't know the technology, sure. Enough I would have gone it. with the I would have gone with the more expensive guy thinking that was better. Yep. So you need to have some basics. If it's not you, at least you need to have some trusted advisor that you can run ideas by. Exactly. All right. Let's talk a little bit about Thorben. So you're the COO of Thorben and the CEO of Thorben. You guys have a special relationship. Well, my wife is yeah, my wife is the CEO. Right. I was gonna I was gonna kind of lead into it slowly. I'm like, you guys have an interesting relationship as CEO, CEO. So your wife is the CEO of Thorben, you're the COO of Thorben. Tell us about Thorben first, what it is, and then I want to find out how you've kind of divided and conquered the the blue jobs, pink jobs, really the, the COO, CEO jobs, right? How have you divided and conquered? Well, and Thorben is a federal government IT contractor, which is okay. its own beast. And it provides basically high, high level technical services for federal government agencies. Putting in, It started putting in SAP systems. So there's giant ERPs. Mm -hmm. And then that's morphed into enterprise cloud. Like everything has moved to the cloud and how do you get the benefit of the move to the cloud? And the business started, my wife was a Pricewaterhouse consultant in the nineties. And the new technology was SAP ERPs. And so she became a, a technical expert in that area. And so she put in the biggest system at the time for Gillette, and then participate in, in basically getting these ERPs started. Now that, that technology wave has kind of run its course. So it's about a 25 year wave. Yeah. The new wave is enterprise cloud. Mm -hmm. And it's basically taking these monstrous systems and putting them on a new platform with different capabilities and again, that is just in its infancy, just like the internet was in the 90s and the ERP was. So this wave is just building. You know, it's been going on for about five years now, a little yeah. bit more for some, okay. but it's picking up steam. And what we've, where, where we're providing the value is companies are moving to the cloud, but they're not taking advantage of the infrastructure that's there. They're not taking advantage of how do I really optimize this new technology, they're looking at it as just a different type of data center. So in the old model, costs went up every year. Okay. Enterprise cloud, if you're doing it right, costs should be going down. And part and in adding in automation. And you know, everyone talks about artificial intelligence and machine learning. Right now, what you really want to do is be getting automated so that when artificial intelligence and machine learning become more mature and more implementable, you'll be able to take your automated process and add those pieces to it. So are you guys a consulting company now, hardware, a bit of both? And are you going, secondly, are you going back to a lot of your original clients and now moving them to the cloud from their old systems? Well, it's funny, most people have already moved to the cloud. Okay. You know, people have already moved to software as a service or sure. they, or if they do have something, they're in the everyone is in the either there or in the process of moving. Yeah, but they moved, and they were promised the brochure of you'll save money, you'll do this. But if you're not intentionally focused on achieving that, you're not going to get it. And so part of our role 
We don't sell hardware and we are basically a high performance consulting and we provide and we do the very technical part. One of the things that we're lacking is some of the soft things that the bigger firms have project management, training, call centers. Yeah. So a lot of our work is they get the complicated thing and then they ask us to do the techno- technological piece. And how, how many on your team now? We have 20 people. Okay. And are they all in Virginia or are they kind of um, they all They all, now it's all remote, but okay. yeah, generally they're in this area. Like they had been at client sites pre-COVID. Is that where most of your clients are then or in the DC or Virginia area? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because the federal government. Okay. What's it like working with government? And would you go down that path of working with government again if you weren't already deeply entrenched? It's very strange for me because I've been involved with other businesses that have different pace. Yeah. And with the federal government, it's glacial. So in another business, you know, you might spend a month to get to know someone, three months to get to a deal and then six months to close a deal. With the federal government, it's one year to get to know them, three years to talk about the deal and five or six years to close the deal. So it's a very different pace, but also the opportunities are much larger. Sure. And so it does take a level of patience. And the the way we got into this, and my wife was a Pricewaterhouse consultant, IBM bought Pricewaterhouse and basically made the consulting no fun. So she decided to just set up her own company. And part of what I did was to get her to that cliff and get her confident that you can leave a salary yeah, and make that leap. Now she's been running it, or you and she have been running it now for a long time, 20 years? Seven, 17 years, 17? Yeah, 2004. But this, that's the interesting thing. So I've been involved, but on a very low level at the beginning. Okay. And she was, she basically started as, and she was expecting it to be a one person company forever. And then just through sheer competence and confidence of clients, she kept adding people. So every year there'd be a new person, a new person. And that's how she's, she's basically built this company organically with no sales and marketing. Would she call herself an entrepreneur or would she call herself more of a CEO now? She would call herself an architect. I mean, she okay. is very much an engineer executing. So what's yeah. interesting about the CEO, COO relationship is um, Harvard actually wrote an article years ago called The Misunderstood Role of the COO. And they identified seven distinct types of chief operating officers. And then in the work I've done, I've also noticed that there's around seven distinct types as well. I just came at it from a very different perspective. In some cases, the COO is very inward facing, right? Operations, engineering, IT, finance, execution. In some cases, they're very outward facing, you know, sales, biz dev, PR. If you think about Shopify as an example, uh, Harley Finkelstein is the COO of Shopify. He's the very outward facing spokesperson of the company, sales, marketing, biz dev, PR culture, right? And even me at 1-800-GOT-JUNK, when I was COO, I was very outward facing as COO. In other cases, the COO would never speak with the media. They would never do biz dev. They, they don't even run sales and marketing. So is she, um, as CEO, more of an inward facing engineering ops architect she's, role? She's executing. So okay. she's working with clients, managing teams, yep. 
And so part of what happened during COVID, you know, COVID created opportunities. Yeah. And so she, she said, I want to, I want to intentionally grow. And so part of what I've been doing over the last two years, so last year I was about half time and this year I'm full time and it was building the infrastructure for sales and marketing. And so in the federal government, there's particular things, there's things called contract vehicles. Mm-hmm. And then there's getting, getting um, how many employees do you have? How many things are you priming? And there's particular things about where the value of your company comes from. Right. So last year we got, we've got our first um, GSA contract, which is one of the big, the big ways that you start getting business. This year we've, you know, we put in proposals for several more of those. So we're building out basically the capability to add business. We're also been developing sales and marketing materials so that we can be more responsive and, have more proposals out. And my goal this year is to build this out so then we can bring on a lead salesperson so then I can focus on <laughs> building out the infrastructure for the growth that's coming. So, so part of this is we're just very intentionally, we're taking advantage of the glacial pace of the federal government and just trying to intentionally put in place these pieces and basically over the next you know, three to five years, continue to grow, but for the first time to grow intentionally, as opposed to just purely organically. So I've got some questions around that kind of three to five year growth plan for sales and marketing. And then I also have a question around these contract vehicles. Is that like the numbers, the government numbers that you're allowed to bid based, you know, you kind of are a certified vendor? Basically, it's a certified vendor. Basically, they they've approved your pricing and that that way people can accept that that is a competitive price. So, and the GSA is a big one that the federal government and state governments can access. And then within agencies, there are smaller ones that give them some flexibility and speed as far as how to get things. So we've, we've been, we participated in something with the NIH, which is national Institute of health. And that would give us access to health IT Mm. opportunities. We have another one with the military health system, which also would help us in the health IT world. And so part of of this is, they call it a license to hunt. Yep. But it basically is you're kind of pre-approved. Makes sense. You still have to compete for specific opportunities. That's the step in the door, at least. Yeah, it's, it's one of the barriers to entry. Yeah. So I heard years ago around this um, that you can actually acquire smaller companies that have some of these numbers and fold those in. And then you basically have bought your way in the door. Is that true? Accurate? It is very accurate. And that is definitely a strategy that some folks do. And they'll they'll look for companies in particular industries, they'll look for companies that have contracts or even just relationships. So there's a guy, have you ever come across Andrew Sherman? Andrew lives in the DC area. He's big in the entrepreneurs organization. He's the chief legal counsel for the entrepreneurs organization. And then also the chief legal counsel for the International Franchise Association. He was on our board at 1-800-GOT-JUNK. He talked about companies having the Rembrandts in the attic. And the, the basic idea was that their IP were these valuable assets that they often didn't see as valuable as they really were. You know, like if you and I were out going to go buy a, 
a home on the lake and we were going to buy a summer home and you bid 4 million bucks and I came in and build, build, bid six, you'd be like, Cameron's crazy. But what you didn't realize is I found two Rembrandt paintings up in the attic that are worth $5 million each. Like, I'll give you the damn house. I'm buying two, you know, $10 million in paintings for 6 million. So is the, are these numbers or these contract vehicles, these doorways into all, are, is that some of the value in the organization that you're building for a potential exit? Absolutely. So there's, you know, there's the pure numbers, right? Cash, cash flow drives most value. Yeah, exactly. Right? That is for every yep. business. Yep. And then it's how attractive are you to another buyer? Mm -hmm. And in the federal government space, having it's one is these contract vehicles. Another is what they call the qual, the qualification. Yeah. Basically, if they buy you, they're able to talk about your experience to win new work. Right. Which is also incredibly valuable. So you've got to you've got to have the 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 ticket to get in the door, and then you've got to have done some work when you're in the door, and then you've got some real little Rembrandt paintings that you guys got to sell. Yeah, and then it gets to the volume. So one of the things yeah. that, and a number of ones that we've just put forward, they say they don't want to know just that you did it, but that you did it at a certain volume. Sure, you know, five million dollars or more, seven million dollars or more, and so that's you know part of being intentional about building this infrastructure is getting enough of those and building up cash flow, building up things that are going to be attractive to someone else. So this three to five year kind of growth plan, marketing sales growth plan that you're working on, how do you cash flow that? Is it, is it just you that's working on it or do you have a few people working on it? Is it a long sales cycle? It is a well, long a, sales cycle. Well, it's the thing is it's a very long sales mm. cycle. Um, and so I have there's me and Julietta. So Julietta is someone that's been part of our family for a while and she has an MBA. And so she is taking over some of these steps to help us get proposals ready, to help us hire people more effectively and build some of these processes. Her next move will be developing training around how we manage projects. Hmm. That'll allow us to bring people on and can you know, basically be able to handle a higher volume of work. Um, part of the three to five years is just knowing the government is, is at its own pace. And so, you know, we, we have, you know, we won our first prime contract this year, so that was fun. And then it's how do we position ourselves for new ones? So part of, part of what we just started to do, you know, we have our own network. We know, have people that know us, but what we need to do is get known by more people in the government. Got it. So I, I always say this, you know, people do business with their friends. We just need more friends. And so that's, that's intentionally we'll be making more friends over the next six, 12, 18 months and giving them a unique perspective. And how do you go about that? How do you go about building those relationships, getting more of those friends in government? Is it through well, lobbying? Is it through sales? Is it PR marketing? Is it a blend of everything? Well, you know what? I, I think there are ways to do it with PR and marketing, but based on our size, this is more like, I don't need 20,000 people. I need 10. Yeah. And so much more hand-to-hand -hand getting to know people. So one of the things that we did was we built a white paper with a unique perspective that should catch people's eyes that are either thinking about going to the cloud or already there. And so now it's 
I'm an individual email guy because, you know, most mass emails get blocked. Yep. So the goal is, you know, if I can send out, you know, 100 to 200 emails, I'm going to get 10 people responding. And then I can build a relationship from there. Most people aren't willing to do that because they want to do the easy thing. Let me just get a list and blast out 10,000. Right. As opposed to being very particular. I'm looking for people in a particular office. With, so we, we have these vehicles that we've applied for in the healthcare. So now what I'm going to be doing is reaching out to people in the government healthcare so we can start identifying when those vehicles are available, then we have people that can use those vehicles. How do you know when to not chase the rabbit anymore? Like how do you, you know, big companies and I would imagine government tend to say yes to the meetings and yes to phone calls and they just allow you to kind of, they drag stuff on and and maybe this is my, my bias or cynic in me, but how do you not spend forever chasing a deal that's never there or not going to happen? Well, or, so or maybe how do you not chase a relationship that won't lead to a deal? Well, well, that's my my strategy is going to be different because a lot of people do do that in this space. And one of the things, you know, be, being from the lawyer, you know, selling services in chunks, part of what we're going to offer is you just need someone to talk to. You can do this on a monthly basis at a very low level. And it would it's in the federal government, everyone's looking for these million dollar, multi-million dollar opportunities. And so part of this is, hey, if we'll just make ourselves available for you know, a certain number of hours per month, one of the things in the government is totally underutilized. Every office has a credit card. Mm-hmm. They can use up to $3,500 a month on that credit card without questions asked. And so that's part of the strategy is that coming providing services in a way that's different than others. Yeah. And as you point out, you know, people will talk to you forever if they don't have to pay anything. Right. So it's basically getting them to a small decision point sooner. And then you can see how serious they are. I heard a funny quote this morning from Jeffrey Madoff, who's an amazing film director. And he said, the difference between a yes and a no is a yes includes a check. Yeah. Well, that's Abraham Lincoln said that. That's one of your first <laughs> lessons as a lawyer is, you know, the lawyer always needs to get money up front because then the lawyer knows he has a client and the client knows he has a lawyer. Right. And it's just a habit that was built up over the last, you know, 30 years. You know, people will, people will take free consulting forever mm-hmm. and they'll spend, it'll waste your time in that way. So the idea is we're providing a high value service we can save them millions of dollars. You're getting them into your funnel with a, a lower ticket item and then building it out from there. Yeah. Really smart. And, 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 and it's something that others don't do. Yeah. That's, really the, that's, the, that's the other side of it. In the federal government space, they are all chasing the great white it's whale. Really smart. It's really smart. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like the, the um, free book, you know, plus shipping, right? And then that leads you into the funnel. And then all of a sudden you're in the mastermind and then it's you're in the platinum program. And then... Interesting. All right. I want to know, I want to go back to the the depth, the kind of core of what some of your interest was. And I think what possibly makes you successful being able to work with your wife and, and also being married for 27 years, conflict analysis and resolution. Like I can't imagine that being married for 27 years has been easy every single day. 
particularly during COVID, there was a few moments was as one business collapsed that it was very uncomfortable around here. So how do you, what are the lessons for first off working with a spouse or a partner? Um, And I think there's a lot more of that coming again. I think there's a lot more of these kind of the digital nomads that are collaborating and working and starting to do stuff. So how do you work well with with a spouse or a partner? And then can you give us some really good tactical, like take home lessons for dealing with conflict? Like business conflict. Yeah. Okay. So for, for the, the spouse part is a challenge. And even now, like I'm in my bedroom, so she's in the office. So now we're in the same home, but we do. And we always have tried to remain separate during the day. Okay. So that we're not just sharing problems as they happen and distracting each other. Okay. So, so I think part of it is kind of a geographic separation Yeah. and really like with any, any COO, CEO, bringing attention to what matters, not to yeah. every little thing. And so part of it is accepting there's a problem. And if you can deal with it, deal with it and then report back later. Okay. Don't, don't make it, don't make it a team event because what happens is then there's a swirl and frustration comes from that. Um, and so that's, that's one piece of it. The other side is having a clear end time to it. So, you know, if there's a proposal, you know, that may spread out into weekends and stuff like that, but on, you know, at a, if there, if there's not like an, an extra thing, mm. business ends. And that part that started back when she was a consultant, she would leave on Monday and come back on Friday. And so before that, we used to work on Saturdays and Sundays when she'd leave on Monday and Friday. So we just, we took 48 hours and spent time together. Right. That has nothing to do with the business, unless of course, there's something that needs to come up. Yeah. And so that I think is really important is making an appointment with the things that matter. Interesting. And, and work is not just the, the appointment, some having an appointment to work out having an appointment for your personal time, having an appointment with each other. Yeah. I think that's, that's kind of a, an important part of this. Love it. Let's talk about conflict. If you've got conflict in the workplace, you know, you, you're having, let's say conflict with a CEO or conflict with a peer on your leadership team or, or conflict with a supplier. Are, are there some good lessons for us in dealing with that? I, I think most conflict comes from people trying to avoid conflict. Like people, they're trying to be too nice and they never actually voice what they want. Hmm. And then you get, then things get to a point of escalation. So part of it is just being incredibly straightforward and also keeping your eye on what is our objective here. So even like this week, nothing to do with the business, our grill outside went up in flames. So we had a, we have a gas grill that went up in flames my wife called me, said, Chris, come out here, come out here. I looked at it and I went and I filled up a bucket of water and she's yelling at me and saying, what the hell are you doing? This and that. And I went out and I poured water on it and we put the fire out. And so part of it is at that moment, knowing what needs to be done and not getting caught up in a swirl. Yeah. So, so from a conflict perspective, it's in a professional environment. So Part of it is having the expectations down. And so part of, in our, in our work, we work with people from other companies. We work with people from, you know, from the government. 
So you're always dealing with a coalition of the willing, but you can't let mediocre people hold you back. So it's defining, we're going to do this process and we'll give you an opportunity, but you have to also buy into the high performance aspect of it. And if you're not going to buy into the high performance, if you're not looking out for the client's best interests, then you may have some uncomfortable moments, but it's with a principle in mind. So, you know, that's, you know, the, the coalition of the willing is something that we all deal with and people want to be nice and let things yeah. happen. At some point, look, you got to get people to buy into what is our objective. And if we're looking out for our clients' best interests, it's really, then, then we've got to follow the process. Yeah. I, you know, it's, it, I think it was Pat Lencioni that talked about the fear of conflicts, you know, in the five dysfunctions of a team as, as being really detrimental. And I think that's that passive aggressive, right? Where you just keep brushing it aside and that underlying issue. I also think conflict also seems to be coming a lot of it's from written communication because we misinterpret everything because the, you know, yeah. we're skimming and we're getting too much and we don't completely read it. And or they read into it too much. And it yeah. is people like in most things, you just got to pick up the phone. Yeah. And, you know, hash it out outside of a group setting. Um, and that's, you know, that's part of, you know, as people are dealing, like, so you, you had an event in the COO two months ago, we had a conflict person. Mm-hmm. I actually checked out because it was too basic to me that conflict, conflict is part of life. That's part of interaction. Sure. And the key is conflict can be negative, but it can also be positive if you're doing it towards a common goal. And I'm, you know, here's my academic side. There's one book that talks about this. It's called, it's a guy named Lewis Kozer. He wrote it in the fifties. It's the functions of social conflict. And no one reads, I don't even know if it's in print anymore, but it explains our current political situation. It explains how, like why conflict exists is because you're getting a benefit from it. Oh. And, and it's, that's why how groups have operated over the last 40,000 years. So it's recognizing that they're negative and positive. Conflict doesn't always end up in a bad result if people are bought in, if people have a common objective. Right. And so that's where making sure that people are bought into that common objective will allow you to get a better result from that interaction. Yeah, it's interesting when companies kind of scale from the, um, you know, when you go from the 30 to the 100 or not even the numbers, it's more from like the the first management team to a real professional leadership team, they tend to get better, they tend to get along better when it's more of a professionally managed company, because they've learned that skill, right? They've learned to be able to have conflict. It is almost like a marriage where you've been able to have enough fights and, and reconciliations that now you just, you don't sit and if you have a fight, you don't walk out the door thinking the marriage is over. You're just like, oh, well, that was that one. And, and you know, you still love the person. And then, you know, you guys get to have good makeup sex in your boardroom, which is kind of cool. <laughs> but in, so one of the things that I've noticed with small, like when I first started my law practice, I'd have someone who'd, people that were just starting business for the first time always had partners. Mm. People that had operated other businesses were sole owners. And part of it was the people didn't have confidence in themselves in the business. Right. And then invariably what happens in any partnership of any level, 
people have different functions. Like this person is responsible for sales, this one accounting, this one for, and everyone believes at some point, if things, if revenue isn't where they want, everyone believes that what they're doing is the most important and what everyone else is doing stinks. Yeah, agreed. It's sad. It's the silos that start to creep it. Yeah. And, and that's where I always prefer the single owner business so people can just make a decision. But then there's also people need to have a common purpose. Yeah. And, you know, in a, like we're a professional service, our focus is on the client. And as long as you're bought into that, that's going to that's gonna be the, the decider as to what makes sense. Right. Then it's just good debate. It's not, it's not conflict about the person. You're just having good debates about the issues. Yeah. I want to go back to, to when you were kind of 22 years old. You know, you're graduating college. You're just getting ready to start off on your career. What advice would you have for the young Chris Kumi that you know to be true today, but you wish you'd known back then? Drink, mm. better, drink better wine? <laughs> I, I would, that's, I haven't really thought about that. It would be, I don't know, that, that one, 22. Because my first, what I did when I was 22 is I went and I helped a, a friend's family set up a hardware store chain and ended up making very little money, but it ended up being a great experience. And then the next phase was helping a, a nut and bolt manufacturer get on computers. Um, so I guess, you know what, it's not when I was 22, it's when I was 28 and just graduated from law school. Okay. You know, I was looking, you know, I was always looking at innovation and opportunity and I graduated from law school in 1994, just as the internet came alive. And it was rather than doing that steady path, you know, I'm, I'm a lawyer, I'm going to build a law practice, is to see the big opportunity and invest in that. Mm. And, you know, when I, in a, my first year as a lawyer, I think I made $8,000. And I, people weren't like, people would come to me and say, oh, well, I need to make this much money, you know, 30 or 40 or $50,000. Well, then you can't go off on your own. <laughs> you have to be willing to invest yeah. two years in. Yeah. I was ahead of all those folks, the salary right. folks. Sure. So that's part of having a comfort level in yourself. But I guess the advice is when you see the opportunity, don't just look at it, go all in when it's a really good one. I love it. Because because on like the internet in 1994, those were brochure sites. There was opportunities in 98 when XML came along that opened up a whole other world, 2001, other opportunities. So it's when that great opening comes, don't just think about it or talk about it. Actually figure out how to take how advantage to get in. of that. Yeah, I love yeah. that. We got a few of them coming up right now too. We're, we're into the dawning of a new, almost the new roaring twenties. It feels like right now. Well, it's, it's definitely, there's so many innovations coming and massive changes mm -hmm. and dislocations mm -hmm. and that's where opportunity comes. And the sad thing is, you know, the United States is getting less entrepreneurial at a time when this is the time where you really need to figure out how do I take advantage of this? And the distinction is 20 years ago, the payouts for doing very well were good. Right now, the payouts for doing very well are Ordinary. astronomical. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's almost, 
for any profession, it's you're almost better off going for you know that big one because you know you could get a million dollar, five million dollar, ten million dollar opportunity. Well, that wasn't the case in the '90s. That was yeah. you, know, you were getting a five hundred thousand dollar opportunity, so it was good, but it wasn't this remarkable life changing thing. And right now, there's never been a better time to be looking for that big opportunity. There's never been. Yeah, there's. I had uh, I had the COO from uh, Blockchain.com as a guest on the podcast yesterday, and and just talking to him about what's happening in the crypto world right now and with blockchain and and there's some really interesting stuff coming down the pipe. All right. We've got COO Alliance member and the COO from Thorben Consulting, the, uh, I guess, the government IT contractor, Chris Kumi. Thanks so much for sharing with us on the Second Command podcast. Really Cameron, appreciate Thank time. you for having me. And I really enjoyed it. And I uh, look forward to seeing you later this month. Say hi to Derek and, uh, and Yannick at a barbecue near you, I'm sure. All right. Thank I you. will. Bye-bye. Thank you. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.